the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. If you're fond of sand dunes and salty Sure to fall. 
Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guests this hour are the co-authors of a new book, Disrupting Dignity, Rethinking Power and Progress in LGBTQ Lives. And uh, they are Stephen Engel, uh, professor of politics at Bates College in Maine, and Timothy Lyle, assistant professor of English at Iona College. And they uh, join me by phone. Steve, Timothy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and I'm not sure who to ask this first, so I'll just I'll just throw it out there for anybody who wants to respond. But is there anything significant about the timing of this book, or was this something that that the two of you wanted to work on, and this is when it's coming out? Uh, that's a, a really good question. I mean, we've been working on the project uh, in, in different installments over the last uh, couple of years, uh, but it, it certainly is a, a contemporary project in the sense that uh, I'm Timothy, uh, English professor, as you noted, and Steve is a, a politics professor, and this was an opportunity for us to both look at uh, a recurring theme that we saw in our fields of study, and we, we both sort of realized that Dignity was having this moment um, in, in conversations around representation and, and certainly in the courts. Um, and, and it has kind of, you know, per, certainly since the, the, uh, the marriage equality decisions has kind of become a cornerstone uh, for, for gay and lesbian right victories. So uh, we, we sort of decided to probe this concept a little bit. You know, people normally think about it as a unquestioned good, and we wanted to open that conversation a little. So very contemporary in that sense. And and Steve, you're more the the politics guy. Um, is is this notion of dignity being disrupted um, specific to LGBTQ, or have we seen kind of a disruption of dignity across the board in American life? Well, I think what we're trying to uh, take stock in this moment is to assess how dignity has been used. Uh, in the in the fields that Timothy has mentioned, in uh, the, the in in the courts, in popular culture, in policy making, and uh, as the authors, we're trying to actually do the disruption. We're trying to ask: Is the common understandings of dignity um, as a fundamentally good thing? What is that actually doing um, when? Uh, governing authorities like judges or politicians use the word dignity, what do they mean by it? How are they using it? Um, and what, is, what are the consequences of that use? 
And so while the book focuses on um, the, the use of dignity, particularly as Timothy pointed out, because it's such a, a foundation for how we have litigated LGBTQ uh, rights claims, um, there's nothing inherent in the concept that is limited to uh, members of the LGBTQ communities. And this, um, what, what does dignity look like in, in those different areas that you describe? Yeah, that's it, it actually is like a, it's a seemingly simple question, right? That doesn't really admit <laughs> yeah. to a, an easy answer. Um, it's you know we we were kind of trying to ask that question ourselves, um, and you know we we ultimately sort of you know as Steve mentioned we're 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 trying to kind of flip the concept a little bit, take this really familiar concept and and make it a little less familiar, and and ask if if uh, there's a, a darker side to it, and you know where we ultimately landed was that in public health policy, in, in pop culture representation, and in law, uh, that, that dignity is used as an exercise of power or can be used as an exercise of power, um, one that can exclude, uh, can mark a boundary, can naturalize or normalize uh, a particular way of living while kind of erasing alternatives. Um, and that was really interesting to us. Yeah, I think just to add on to that, uh, one of the things that we found is that in all of these deployments across these three different domains of pop culture, uh, health policy, uh, constitutional law, dignity doesn't really have a stable meaning, right? It can be deployed by different people to mean different things at different times. And that's what makes the deployment of the concept so powerful, uh, because it can have, as Timothy suggested, this boundary-making effect. I think in my field of law and politics, we tend to think of dignity most often as a status, as something we have uh, that demands respect for our autonomy or our individual freedom. So to have dignity might be thought of as to have your uh, choices respected. But uh, what we explore is the idea that even respect as sort of like a concept related to dignity is a slippery term, right? In, in Supreme Court decisions that sometimes utilize dignity the courts made clear that the Constitution requires um, that you respect or that I respect your choices, even if I might disagree with them. But in the marriage equality cases, dignity is used quite differently. It's the idea that dignity is a status that might be earned or someone is invested with dignity for engaging in people, for engaging in behavior that other people consider worthy, right? And that's almost the opposite of the notion of respect. It's the idea of being respectable. And so that kind of flexibility is what we're seeking to probe in these three areas. Now, you talk about those three areas, but, but I want to ask about public health. Would that be a factor for consideration in a discussion like this if it hadn't been for AIDS? Mm. Well, you know, we, we Would we even uh, be talking about health policy in a discussion like this? I understand pop culture and, of course, you know, law and legislation and, and all of that. But the health policy component, is that something that, that was dragged into this discussion by the conversations around the AIDS epidemic? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you ask that because we actually, you know, begin our book 
uh, in that sort of pivotal period of the early AIDS crisis. Um, you know, I, I certainly think, you know, we, we ultimately sort of look at the pol politicization of public health, right, where politics kind of collide with the public health. And I think we do see that in a variety of public health issues. Um, but, but for this text and for our community, uh, the AIDS crisis is pivotal because it was a uh, really vulnerable period um, and a period in which uh, dignity as, as an idea became its most seductive. Um, you know, we were, uh, you know, under siege. Uh, we were being decimated by a very confusing virus, um, being stigmatized, um, not having legal protections uh, before, the, uh, before it was included in the ADA. Uh, so, you know, the state sort of issued an ultimatum to, to the community, um, be dignified or die. Uh, and, and that was, you know, a sort of moment where we see a shift, a really noteworthy shift that kind of begins our discussion um, about the path that we've taken towards uh, liberation and, and equality and, and maybe what we've lost as a result. And, and I would suggest uh, further that the public health politics um, can't be separated fully from the law and constitutional questions, particularly around um, decriminalization, but also especially around marriage equality, because it was in uh, the, one of the consequences of the AIDS-HIV crisis as it um, took place over the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, uh, was that it exposed the legal vulnerabilities of same-sex couples uh, as not being recognized um, by the state in terms of uh, wills, in terms of partner benefits, in terms of passing on property. And so, uh, as the historian George Chauncey has pointed out, uh, the public health context was a major impetus for uh, the movement communities to seek uh, some form of relationship recognition that culminated in the marriage equality decisions in 2013 and 2015. More about Disrupting Dignity with co-authors Stephen Engel and Timothy Lyle, straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. 
A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about Disrupting Dignity with co-authors Stephen Engel and Timothy Lyle, straight ahead. How did you, as co-authors, approach the writing of this book? What, how, how did you choose a voice, and, and who is that voice talking to? Yeah, so this was a, for me, and this is Steve talking, uh, this was a really fun project, um, particularly because there's often co-authorship um, within a sort of field of study. So in my field of political science, or I might also work with another social scientist, say a sociologist or economist, uh, Timothy and I, I think, are doing something very different, which is we're talking across often seemingly unrelated disciplines, right? He is in the humanities as an English professor and cultural studies professor. I am in uh, the social sciences. And so it really presented an opportunity to think cross-disciplinarily and and transdisciplinarily and see how we could focus in on this concept of dignity and then be open to how it is made manifest 
in all of these domains that don't necessarily get discussed in a single work. And I think that opens up the possibilities for engagement and interest from a really wide audience. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I, I think it was a great opportunity for us to learn from each other as well um, and to think about our own fields a little bit differently um, as a result of our conversation with each other. And it helped that we had a personal relationship. You know, we, we're, you know, we're friends, uh, been colleagues for a while. And uh, so in terms of voice, I think uh, what we hope that people will feel uh, and pick up on when they read is that we, we researched this in community. We wrote it in community. We're you know, we're almost dialoguing with each other as we dialogue with the reader. Um, and we really hope that comes through across the manuscript. But it certainly is challenging, too. You know, we, we do have different writerly voices. And, and so we had to figure out uh, how to strike a balance between those two voices without sacrificing the particularity of either. But, but then I wonder, how much of this... Uh do you think is is preaching to the choir uh, in in other words will readership be largely by people who are part of or at the very least sympathetic to the lgbtq community or um leaders of uh thought and politics and government and and do you think that those two different groups will be reading the same book? Uh, I, well, I definitely don't think that, that multiple audiences will necessarily read, have the same reader's experience, but, but I do think that uh, folks inside and outside of LGBTQ communities will be, uh, we hope, provoked by the book um, and, and interested. You know, we are certainly, because we're trying to take this concept that people usually think about um, as an as a unquestioned good and uh, think about these victories as unquestioned goods, um, we, we hope that in, in sort of flipping those ideas on their heads and asking kind of provocative questions that, uh, that we get engagement from folks um, within the community and, and certainly outside the community as well. Um, so, you know, we certainly don't anticipate uh, preaching to the amen corner to a lot of readers uh, because there <laughs> certainly are plenty in the LGBTQ community that are um, maybe going to be surprised by the, by the argument um, and, and certainly, I hope, uh, be, be engaged by it. Yeah, and I think we wrote it. We were very committed to writing it to, for the book to be accessible um, certainly to uh, folks like our own students, but members of our community and folks outside of our communities. And I think one of the ways we tried to do that was, um, so for example, Timothy took a lead in chapters that were very focused on their area of expertise. Um, but then what we would do would be, I would then read those chapters and make sure as a non-expert I could understand what was going on in those chapters. Um, and so we wrote it with this idea that you don't necessarily have to have any prior knowledge to come into this argument. Uh, the same way with uh, the chapters on constitutional law and, and Supreme Court decisions, I took the lead on those. Uh, Timothy would edit and critique them. And so there's no expectation that a reader would require any prior understanding to be able to engage with the ideas in the book fully. 
Does the book suggest, um, and, and again, the, the title of the book is Rethinking Power, well, Disrupting Dignity, Rethinking Power and Progress in LGBTQ Lives. Once you disrupt dignity and, and start the process of rethinking power, does the book challenge the reader to think a new way, and what does that new way look like? Yeah, I, so I think, um, as, as uh, I mentioned a little bit earlier, we tend to think of dignity as a status, right, as something we have, um, as something we are, we are dignified, or we have dignity. And, and that, and that it's think, inherent in some way. Well, I think that that's what people commonly think, right, that it's this kind yeah. of pre-political idea Right, and that government might be instituted to try to ensure that dignity is recognized and respected. We're all what created we're trying... dignified. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and what we're trying to do is suggest that perhaps, while that's an aspirational idea, it's not the idea that we actually see playing out. And often what we see is that dignity is understood uh, to encapsulate ideas um, and social norms that might be associated with restraint, with responsibility, and that are often most easily aligned with what we would think to be um, uh, white, cisgender, and often masculinist concepts. And so what we're trying to do is ultimately get to the point where dignity might not be something we are or something that we have, but something that we do. Right, And so this idea is that dignity might be um, something that could be practiced and that it could be a habit. And um, I think here our cover image, which is actually a, a photo that Timothy took, um, is of um, a protest march in New York City. And uh, there's a protester holding up a sign that says, until dignity becomes a habit. And that idea is that dignity might be thought of as something that is practiced, that is a verb, to do dignity. And we're trying to suggest that doing dignity might be uh, an action that's guided by a principle to root out stigma. Uh, Timothy, what kind of feedback have you gotten so far from the, uh, from the book? Yeah, it's, it's you know the the book actually started as a uh, as a law review article a couple of years ago, um, and we did a symposium actually in a couple of, of conference presentations, uh, and we we've gotten a, a lot of great feedback from folks uh, across across disciplines, um, and you know certainly there is in as much as there's been praise, there's also been a little confusion <laughs> um, and, a, and a little bit of pushback and just in, in part because we are taking this concept that people think they understand so well, um, asking a different set of questions about it. But, but my favorite sort of feedback has actually been uh, from people in our lives outside of academia. Uh, I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn here, but, but Steve's parents, uh, particularly his father, has had got a very early copy of the book and read it from cover to cover. Um, and, uh, conversed with us back and forth about, you know, what he thought were the whims and where he was uh, interested in pushing back a little bit. Um, you know, and we also wrote for uh, a, a social media site um, called Hornet, uh, which is uh, an LGBTQ sort of hub that's very international. And we got to write 
brief snippets and engage with folks uh, from a kind of public intellectual level. Um, and so it's been a lot of fun uh, talking to strangers who have run across kind of kernels of the argument uh, in other venues as well. So we're really encouraged by the, the feedback that we've received so far, and we can't wait to hear from others once it's in people's hands and on their screens in mid-June. You know, changing people's thinking uh, seems, I, I don't know, sort of nebulous to me. Um, and and I, I don't know if you agree with that, but it, it, it just seems like it's it's a little bit fuzzy are there some clear behaviors or clear changes um in public perception and in types of of legislation and and rights guarantees that you hope would be an outcome from this book is there a desired outcome and and how would you define that outcome yeah so i think where we go to in the book right is we want to be very clear that while we are questioning sort of common understandings of dignity um the question that we're asking is not you know if not dignity then what right no no other organizing right. concept whether it's humanity freedom you know personhood solves the problems with dignity that we're trying to expose, right? And so that leads us to this idea of uh, dignity as an action, as something that can be practiced. And so then what does that look like tangibly? That's, that's how I'm interpreting your question. Yeah, so that's a great in, in, way to rephrase right. it. Thank you. Right. So then thinking about, like, some of the domains, um, and I'll certainly let uh, Timothy speak to... to um, pop culture, but in law, it might mean, for example, taking seriously that our stunted understandings of equal protection and the 14th Amendment more broadly are actually a consequence of how those decisions were initially, or how those parts of the Constitution were initially read by the Supreme Court through quite an anti-black and racist lens. Uh, in the late 19th century, and how that has carried forward, even in decisions that progressives would uh, applaud, we see legacies um, of that initial anti-black stigmatization. And so we need to take seriously, what does this mean as a consequence? Do we need to rethink some of our initial precedents? So we talk a lot about that in, in, the, in chapter six of the book. Yeah, I, I think that I really love this question because it, it kind of points to our conclusion as well, as well, where we really kind of lay out some suggestions. You know, Steve mentioned earlier this, this, this principle guided by anti-stigma um, and, you know, doing dignity differently. And we, we, we try hard to say, here's what we think that looks like, you know, as a kind of conversation starter. Um, for, for representation, kind of pop culture, one suggestion that we uh, sort of make is is not thinking about all of this increased visibility uh, as you know an unalloyed good. Um, you know, think about visibility also as a potential trap. You know, and when we're looking at multicultural casting, for example, you know, is is that doing the work that we think that that it's doing, um, or is it perhaps sort of lulling us uh, into you know thinking we're accomplishing something that that perhaps we're not, and and so we start asking questions and giving suggestions about 
diversity and equity and content creation, thinking about who's in the writing rooms, thinking about who's doing the directing, who's doing the producing, um, who gets to actually steer the content of the narrative uh, versus just sort of being a kind of a diversity, you know, in terms of embodiment on the screen. Um, and and, and you know, over and over and over again, we try to point out that we want to balance the, the, the victories with the critique. Um, we want to point out the things that we think have been accomplished um, and have been fought hard for, but then we also want to, to point to uh, perhaps what's been lost in the process and how we could do it a little bit better in the future. Timothy, you used a, a, a phrase that, that caught my ear when you said uh, to start the conversation. At, at the end of the book, do you, think, uh, do you think of the book as a conversation starter or a roadmap to a better way of, of thinking and doing things going forward? That's a good question. I mean, I, you know, because I'm an educator and, and, a, and a, a thinker, I, <laughs> here, I've always here comes thinking, the Socrates. Yeah, right. I'm just sort of thinking about. Um, I, I guess let me let me let me rephrase that. I aspire to, and I think Steve shares this goal. I aspire to give readers a tool to think with, um, and to you know, the reader to end with as many questions as they they came to the book with. Uh, but maybe have some some tools in their toolkit uh, to to better navigate some of those questions. Um, and I hope more than anything else that they're inspired uh, to to actually think a little bit differently and to tell a friend and to read more uh, as they as they think about their own ideas around the subject. Definitely don't want to control the conversation or or tell people how to think. Uh, that's that's certainly not the goal. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons we decided to end the book on this idea of instead of giving specific policy um, answers or responses, um, what we gave was um, dignity might be best uh, enacted through a principle, right? And so it's this, this anti-stigma objective that then could guide a range of different types of actions in different domains. And I think what we're trying to do in the conclusion of the book is point out, here are some possibilities. There's probably a lot more. Uh, we look at things like apology and acknowledgement, and we say we point out how certain apologies for past uh, bad actions, for things like criminalization of uh, same-sex intimacy, um, how those worked well uh, when they did not work well, and how we might um, be able to distinguish between the two. But I think ultimately, as Timothy suggests, the book points towards tools or frameworks and not definitive answers. Steve, um, you know, I always, I, I have this saying about legislation um, that, that two questions must be answered. Um, when considering legislation, who cares and how are you going to pay for it? Um, mm -hmm. With legislation, because it's difficult to pass, is the kind of, of rethinking of, of power and progress um, and, and this notion of, of being able to turn dignity into a, a verb... Um, e is it 
something that can be legislated or is this something we really have to address in terms of public practice? I would argue that it's not necessarily an either or, but a both and, right? I think what we point to is possibilities for um, thinking about public practice. Uh, but I would also suggest that dignity in the U.S. Constitution, for example, there is no dignity clause, unlike other constitutions across the world, right? So we don't have in the U.S. Constitution a clear anchor uh, for the concept that we are exploring. We have questions about uh, and, and, and concepts in our Constitution about equal protection, about due process, but we don't, that word, dignity, does not appear in, in the U.S. Constitution. And so that makes it a tricky thing when a whole slew of LGBTQ rights recognitions are grounded in a concept that we all kind of know and that we think is rhetorically beautiful and yet isn't necessarily there. So if we want to enact what we think we want uh, through the concept of dignity, then I would argue that we need to take very seriously current legislation like the Equality Act, right? Because the Equality Act does some things that fill in the, fill in the gaps of our own constitution, that acts on our founding principles, but uh, makes very concrete how those principles can be lived out through policy. So uh, very specifically, Last, uh, last June, the Supreme Court came down with the Bostock decision, which protects individuals uh, who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender from discrimination in the workplace. Uh, but uh, that uh, protection does not extend currently under federal law um, to uh, discrimination in, say, public accommodations. And so uh, the Equality Act might fill in the gap. Well, we're close to the, the end, and I always, uh, well, first I want to thank you both, uh, Stephen uh, Engel and Timothy Lyle, the co-authors of Disrupting Dignity, Rethinking Power and Progress in LGBTQ Lives. Um, I want to thank you both for, for sharing your thoughts uh, with me and the listeners this morning. But um, also, I, I like to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we're talking about or recommend some resources. Obviously, the book is a good place to start. But do either or both of you have uh, websites? I, I would say the, the the best place to go, maybe we both have faculty uh, website pages at our respective institutions, uh, Steve at Bates College and Timothy at Iona College in uh, New Rochelle, New York. Um, but the press also has a, uh, New York uh, University Press has a, a launch page for Disrupting Dignity uh, that offers uh, more information about the book um, and, and certainly ordering information, but also offers uh, some of the thoughts about the book from some of our colleagues who've also written some, some excellent books themselves um, and, and works. Uh, and it's, it's actually in a series uh, for the press, the LGBTQ politics series. Um, so the press will also have more information there where folks can go to do some, some related reading if they uh, are interested in our project. And we hope they are. Well, excellent. Thanks again to uh, both of you, and keep up the good work. Thanks for having us. 
All right. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if you got a better cough in your arm and if you got a better <coughs> now back in 1918 influenza had its run but half the docks were busy overseas with world war one today we have mass media and scientists to say if you don't want this virus well then stay six feet away super damn important that we practice isolation because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation will overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation it's super damn important that we practice isolation if we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine. The last until July, a super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Tom Sumner, program.com. The Tom Sumner, program.com. From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services.
The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Right, so now, in order for you to understand what I'm going to do next, I have to go way back and speak about my great-grandfather, whom we traced back to Marie Antoinette. As a matter of fact, my great-grandmother traced him back there a couple of times. <laughs> but he was partly responsible for the birth of my grandfather. He thought. <laughs> my grandfather was born in Denmark. He was Danish after his mother and Swedish after a friend of his father's. He was one of the great inventors of his time. He invented the burglar alarm, which unfortunately was stolen from him. (laughs) He was a brilliant man. He was 
Among other things, a Ph.D. Just a f- <laughs> So was his wife. However, besides being a brilliant f- he also was a great chemist. He was the one who invented the cure for which there was no disease to know. <laughs> Unfortunately, his wife later caught the cure and died. <laughs> he was a strange personality. He always experimented with something. Once he... Um, he crossed an Idaho potato with a sponge. <laughs> Imagine that silly idea. It tasted horrible. But it sure held a lot of gravy. I think his greatest invention was a soft drink, which he called Four Up. <laughs> but it wasn't successful at all. So he invented Five Up. But still it didn't click, you know. Then came Six Up. But still nobody liked it. So he gave up and died heartbroken a couple of weeks later. But little did he know how close he came. <laughs> Then I was born, and when that happened, my parents were, well, they were not poor, but they didn't have any money. <laughs> so I was actually born at home. And when my mother saw me, she was taken to the hospital. <laughs> One day, when I was four years old, my father came home, and he found me in the living room, in front of a roaring fire, which made him very angry because we didn't have a fireplace. <laughs> there I sat, and here my father stood, burning up. He pointed at me, see, my father was left-handed. He always pointed this way. I was sitting on the other side. So my father said, Borger. He didn't know my first name. <laughs> See, in my father's family, we had a little trouble up here. In the head. My father was all right, but his two brothers, my male uncles. <laughs> you know, in Denmark, we always distinguish, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that we have three sexes over there. <laughs> Male, female, and convertible. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was supposed to have been back to Denmark this summer. But I ain't going. Oh, 
once I made up my mind what I was going to be, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> what I meant to tell you before was, and this is not a joke, this is really a fact, that two weeks ago, we celebrated my uncle's 103rd birthday. Isn't that something? Thank you very much. 103rd birthday. Unfortunately, he wasn't present. <laughs> How could he be? He died when he was 29. <laughs> but what I meant to say was that he was the one who went crazy. And his mother used to say that he went crazy because he never got the woman he loved. And that's a lot of nonsense because his brother went just as crazy. And he got her. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Side of dreams. Oh. 
Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 